How will history remember our prime ministers? In fact, how does history already remember our prime ministers? Now, when I say history, you must understand I am using the term relatively. These days, and there is no getting around it, the chief vehicle for carrying history or discovering anything about history is of course, WhatsApp. Just as you can't really tell the difference between TV anchors and Twitter trolls, you can't either tell the difference between modern historians and professors at WhatsApp University. It's dangerous in a way because there's no way of double checking. If you were to tell young people who learned things on WhatsApp, why don't you go and read a history textbook, you'll find out what really happened. They won't because what happens is they keep rewriting these history textbooks so that ultimately the WhatsApp version of what happened and the textbook version of what happened are exactly the same thing. Somewhere along the way, real history, reality is lost. If you've been following WhatsApp history, then you'll have some idea of how people are portrayed these days. Let's see, Mahatma Gandhi, not a bad fellow, but not such a good chap either. He gave Pakistan away, then who else? Jawaharlal Nehru, terrible guy, stooge of the British, used to claim he was going to go to jail, actually he just went on holidays with his British friends. Nathuram Godse, true patriot, brave guy. Okay, he got a little carried away sometimes, yeah, but who doesn't? Indira Gandhi, strong leader, brave leader, decisive, took no nonsense from anybody, took decisions. Manmohan Singh, didn't do anything. Just listen to what he was told by the evil dynasty. Sonia Gandhi, white woman, tried to rule India, kept colonialism going, spent all her time trying to do direct benefits for the peasantry, not realizing the future of India, not with these poor guys here, yeah? it's with the new lower middle class, we're the kings. That's the kind of stuff you'll find on WhatsApp. And I don't want to say it's accurate or inaccurate, I think you can make up your own minds. But sadly, that is becoming history. Maybe 10 years from now, 11 years from now, our children and our grandchildren, when they try and look back at the history of India, will not know what really happened in the world and what happened on WhatsApp. But that's not my point today. My point today is that two people seem to be missing from this WhatsApp history. The first is Atal Bihari Vajpayee. You don't actually see that much about him in these WhatsApp histories. So why is that? Well, number one, I don't think he was one of those guys who fully embraced Hindutva. So as far as WhatsApp's concerned, that's a bad thing. But he's one of their own, so they won't attack him. Advani, well, it's Advani who as far as they're concerned. Maybe if he hadn't had a V in his surname, things would have been different. The other person who you never really see much about, and this I find odd, is Rajiv Gandhi. They talk about Indira Gandhi, they abuse Sonia Gandhi, they abuse Rahul Gandhi, of course. I mean, that's a full-time occupation for many of these guys. But Rajiv actually is hardly ever talked about. Why is this? That's a bit odd because, I mean, looking at things, even when you talk to congressmen and you ask them about their history, this Mrs. Gandhi was a controversial figure, but on balance, they will defend her. They will say very good things about liberalization. They'll say the Congress brought about liberalization. They'll say good things about Manmohan Singh is the architect of liberalization. They'll throw a little praise towards Narasimha Rao. They'll go on to Sonia Gandhi. They'll talk about direct transfers, all the things she did for the poor. But you know, even they won't talk about Rajiv Gandhi. For some reason, they act as though there are no achievements to talk about. 
They are a little shifty if you mention Bofors, but actually as we'll see, there's nothing there for them to be shifty about. But it's strange that on neither side is there any enthusiasm about talking about Rajiv Gandhi. It's odd because Rajiv Gandhi won the biggest mandate in Indian history. Nobody's equaled it now. He did many, many things that changed the way in which we live now. And yet we don't talk about it. I was reading Manishankar Ayer's new book. It's called The Rajiv I Knew, which is true. I mean, he did know Rajiv, but the, it gives, I think, a slightly misleading impression of the book because Mani says quite clearly that while he was part of Rajiv's PMO, he was a mere joint secretary. He wasn't involved in major decisions. They kept him out of a lot of stuff. So the book is really based on research. He's spoken to the principal actors. He's talked about the things that happened in Rajiv's PMO, in Rajiv's government. He's looked at documents. He's looked at records. He's looked at books. And the Rajiv that emerges from the book is a Rajiv who I think deserves to be celebrated. We forget now that when Rajiv Gandhi took over, people were asking, particularly in the West, can India hold together? Will it break up? There are riots on the street. The assassination of Mrs. Gandhi said, terrible consequences. There were secessionist movements all over India. One of the first things Rajiv did in the first year, he signed an accord in Mizoram, he signed an accord in Punjab, he signed an accord in Assam. He went all over India, wherever there was a problem. He even went to Bengal, where there was a problem with the Gurkhaland movement, and he ended that. He was at heart a conciliator. He took people who wanted to fight with the system, and he brought them in within the system. He wasn't exactly a softie because the Punjab Accord was endangered by the assassination of Santa Langobal and again militants began using the Golden Temple. He sent in the NSG and the Punjab police. They had a very successful operation Black Thunder, unlike the disastrous operation Blue Star, which Mrs. Gandhi had okayed, and they knocked out the terrorists. So this mixture of taking no nonsense and yet telling people this is our India, we've come together, I think worked for him. It's instructive that when he lost the election in 1989, not one person asked, will India break up? Is there too much secessionism? It was taken for granted that India was on its way. Now, Manishankari mentions some of this in his book, and he mentions many of Rajiv's other achievements. In my view, he doesn't focus enough on the computer revolution. The fact that we are a tech superpower today is because of Rajiv, who took us on that direction. The fact that telecom has transformed India is because of Rajiv. Nobody did it before. But Manishankarayar does, to his credit, point out many things that Rajiv did wrong. For instance, Rajiv fired the Foreign Secretary at a press conference, even though his officers had told him, Sir, 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 please don't do this. The IPKF thing was a disaster from start to finish. Rajiv was very badly advised. So yes, he accepts many of the things that Rajiv did wrong. And he accepts also that he didn't really understand what Rajiv was thinking a lot of the time because he wasn't close enough to understand. But there are two things in the book that I find particularly significant. One is Bofors. Now, for most of us, Bofors is a very big bore, but because I was covering it when it happened, it's not such a bore to me. But basically what happened, for those of you who don't remember what happened, and I'm sure nobody does, is that the Indian Army bought a gun from a company called Bofors. Nobody disputes it was the best gun. It's used, it's come in use. We've used one Cargill because of it. But 
it was revealed in a separate investigation by Swedish radio that Bofors had paid bribes to people in India. Rajiv Gandhi denied any commissions, let alone bribes had been paid. The opposition insisted that the Swedes said bribes had been paid. The Swedes finally admitted that they had made payments to three entities. One was a company called Moresco, one was a company called Svenska, and the third and the most interesting was a company called AE Services. Now, it's always been believed that AE Services was where the kickbacks really went because AE Services was told if you don't get us the contract by such and such time, the deal's off. So, clearly, there was some kind of kickback type operation there. Who got that kickback? Who was behind AE Services? Manishankarayir goes through the papers, he goes to the timing, he looks at records of meetings. He finds that Arun Nehru, who was Rajiv's cousin, who had been one of Mrs. Gandhi's chief advisors and now tried to take the same position in Rajiv's office, was the guy who actually met the Bofors people. That after Arun Nehru was thrown out of government, the payments to AE services suddenly ceased. This is long before the case became public. Why would they do that? Money suggests that the guy who took the kickbacks was Arun Nehru. Now, you can argue and Arun Nehru is not here to defend himself, so I don't want to take this too far. But it's an interesting revelation and it comes from the documents. There's a second revelation which will probably interest you more because it's topical. You've heard it said that the Congress opened the gates of the disputed structure, the Babri Masjid, stroke Ram Mandir. Yeah? Now, the Congress has always said it has nothing to do with us. It was the judicial order. What could we do? The other option that the Congress has is say, yeah, yeah, we opened the gates. It's our movement. Of course, they're not going to say that. They're going to act like they were innocent victims who just happened to be around when a court case was decided. Manishankarayir traces the sequence of events. The sequence of events is as follows. Arun Nehru has a guy called Veer Bahadur Singh, appointed Chief Minister of Uttar Pradesh. He's completely Arun Nehru's man. Arun Nehru runs Uttar Pradesh. Veer Bahadur Singh, at the end of 1985, goes to Ayodhya. He meets a delegation of people who tell him, why don't you get these gates open? Why don't you get these locks thrown out? And he says, okay. A petition is filed. It's been going on in the district sessions court. And that comes up for hearing in February. Till then, the attitude of the administration has always been, keep this place locked. It's a disputed structure. And it's been locked as a matter of interest, not by court order, but by the UP government. So the court says to the UP government, what do you want to do? Do you still want to keep this locked? And the UP government in the shape of the district magistrate and the senior SP say, no, there's no problem. You can open the gates, no threat to law and order. We have no objections to it. So of course the judge says, fine, we'll open the gates now. So yes, it was a judicial order. But it was basically because the UP government, a Congress government, wanted that gate open. Who did it? Well, Veer Bahadur Singh, I think, has to take responsibility. He was chief minister. These were his guys. But anybody who knew Veer Bahadur Singh, and I knew him a bit in those days, knew that if he wanted to go to the bathroom, he would first take Arun Nehru's permission. So would a guy take a decision like this without some kind of direction from Delhi? Would he do it without listening to Arun Nehru? Probably not. And why would Arun Nehru do it? Well, that's obvious. Arun Nehru had always believed that the Congress should play the Hindu card. And after he was thrown out of the Congress and he did the rounds of the parties, 
he ended up in the BJP anyway. According to Manishankaraya, and again, he has no real evidence, except because he wasn't there himself, except for the words of people who were there, including Wajat Habibullah, who was looking at this issue. When Rajiv heard that in the district court in Ayodhya, such and such order had been given, at that stage, none of us knew what the Babri Masjid was or that this would become such a significant thing. He realized what Arun Nehru was up to. Arun Nehru was first sidelined and then he was sacked and then he left the party. So, was Rajiv Gandhi involved in the decision to open the gates? Probably not because he never capitalized on it. Was he then betrayed by Arun Nehru who if you listened to his conversation, always acted like he was a really smart guy and Rajiv was an idiot and he knew how to do everything and who clearly wanted the Congress to take a pro-Hindu agenda? Maybe he was. And maybe it was Arun Nehru who created the controversy we see today. And we will see it in the days ahead. So, do you think that the BJP should say, hey, thank you so much to the memory of Arun Nehru for giving us this issue? Maybe, but given that they won't even say thank you to Advani, I think it's unlikely.